Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. While groups of school children wandered around the historically rich, chewy center of Philadelphia learning about our nation's history, me and the trip team were enjoying Philly by doing what we do best, sitting in a dark recording studio before noon and drinking. Bootleg Hyperinia at Fitting for a bootleg person. I was very excited when I heard you wanted Hyperinia because I love Hyperinia. Good. Yeah, especially after uh, picking up the ingredients. Yeah. Uh, well, the bar is low on a Tuesday morning. You know, I'm glad it is. Yes, the bar is no pun intended. The bar is low. Uh, yeah, well, that's true. I should I should uh, step into the breach. All right, <laughs> that's good. Don't you're lying. He no, it's great. With a grimace. No, give it to me. That's awesome. Sure? Don't take that away from me, please. No. It's, it's delicious. No, no, that's awesome. Let's let's have a go. This is what it should be. All right, cheers. Cheers. For the next two weeks, this show will be in Philadelphia, just a taste of this fine American city. Over the past few decades, Philadelphia's had some image problems and some very real problems. Some cop decided to label a whole part of the city's north as the Philadelphia Badlands. Just last week, somebody noticed that Google Maps was actually labeling it that, which is bullshit. Back when I was a reporter, I dipped into Philly quite a bit, from the upscale neighborhood in Center City to that 25th Police District in North Philly. And it is a hard town not to like. The place that I got to know is well represented by this week's fashion designer Wale Oyejide, a Nigerian-American designer, writer, musician, and lawyer whose designs under his clothing label Ukiri Jones has appeared in Black Panther and elsewhere. The man likes a strong drink in the morning, and he's got strong ideas about how fashion can engage with the global south. He was a pleasure to talk to. I am Nathan Thornburg, and from Luminary Media, this is The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Should we jump in? Let's jump in. All right. Yeah. Fresh off so, the plane. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this, it sounds... I had this discussion with a few friends. You would be someone who can relate. There are things you say that will sound absurd and ridiculous to the general population because they are, but they're also your life and it's standard. And it becomes difficult because you have I to... I want to hear this now. If, if you have a level of like awareness, social awareness, yeah. you realize that what's about to come out of your mouth sounds like... Okay. Like, yeah, I just got back from Italy and it was fantastic. And you say these things... <laughs> oh, that's what you're going to... That's well, the yeah, that's, that well, that's, that's the context. But to the average person, it's like, yeah, guy, you sound like... But it's really like... But that's actually what happened. Yeah, literally. You just got back from Rome and it was fantastic. Probably six hours ago. Yeah. Um, in and out of Rome and area of the country called Calabria, which is okay. basically the southern countryside, the, the bottom of Italy. Tourists yeah. don't go there. It's economically depressed. There's not really reason to go there for tourist reasons, but we get there and it turns out to be an incredible place for the work that we do. Yeah. Which is, uh, I have this ongoing project called After Migration in which I essentially as a designer, photograph and tell the stories of migrants and refugees using my 
fashion design as a, was a way to kind of sneak their stories into the world. How, all right, let's talk about that. How do you, I mean, it's funny because we, we kind of do this a little bit with like food where we're yeah. trying to use food to tell some tough stories. Yes. And there's a line that you can never cross. Yeah. And actually, I, I think there have been some examples that are a little hazy in my mind now, but where fashion has crossed that line. So fashion generally is the, one of the worst industries in the world. There is a... <laughs> as, as a rule. Yeah, there's a common fact that is actually inaccurate, but still makes the point well. People say that fashion is the second most pollutive, if that's a word, industry right. in the world as far as just the waste and damage it creates. It's actually like not accurate, but still, nevertheless, it's, the point is fair because generally, as an industry, all it does is makes you feel, you being general to you, makes you feel insecure about who you are. You're too fat, too thin, too short, not blonde enough, not young enough. Uh, you can't fit into these clothes, so therefore you're not cool, you're not sexy, you're not worthy of being a person. Or you're not rich enough. It's just generally a, yeah. a, 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 an industry that feeds upon this false sense of in- exclusivity and so it's like if you're a poor person in, in wherever, you want to get that Gucci because your friends can't have the Gucci. And, yeah. the, and Gucci itself has sees no value in you because to them you're just part of their bottom line. And and even on a base level, just the messaging that they're going to tell you to like constantly be buying new clothes. Absolutely. That like used clothes are just a, you know an abomination. Right. So you're saying the industry being that way means that if when they dive into serious issues yes. or try to make something thematic around the refugee crisis, mm. it's going to get real fucked up real quick. It's almost always exploitative when the fashion industry yeah, yeah. turns its lenses towards people who are not the makers of fashion. Um, I haven't seen too many things specifically towards refugees, but I mean, for me, it's like, you, it's very, very common to see images of some random huge fashion conglomerate in like, Kenya with the Maasai population mm-hmm. and you see these yeah, you see yeah, these yeah. Maasai guys and they're almost like furniture like it's like this cool <laughs> right this exotic background dangerous animals Africa yeah. the wildlife yeah and you see this thin model who's very beautiful but it doesn't appear that you know she's again their background to her they're they're uh stage settings and these are human beings these are a culture these are people who are stored for for generations if not centuries of of their own very sophisticated in their own way lifestyle and you use them as basically decoration that's i mean i know you've lived several lives but that's one of the main reasons why i was so psyched to talk to you is just like that feels like so real to me as a casual observer of what fashion media sure. puts up is like that furniture sense sure. and the idea and including with, you know, I guess Black Panther would be the most kind of mainstream cultural product that people would key in on of like, oh shit, well, what happens when you actually get Africans working on, on African identity, African right. clothes, African, I mean... Except for ghost dogs accent, <laughs> but we don't have ghost to talk dogs about is it. very polarizing. There are people who think ghost dogs is the best. No, really, ever. I've heard this often, actually. That can't be. Possible. I. It's not. Yeah. I don't die on that hill, personally. <laughs> okay, you're yeah. not. You're, you're gonna leave. Yeah, that. I, I, you're gonna leave that out of there. Yeah. So the idea of of thematizing the refugee crisis. Sure. I mean, is that basically yes. what you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, through fashion, how do you do that dance? Like, what? How do you absolutely? How do you use fashion to? It's almost the idea that tools that are very powerful, which is storytelling imagery. These are all tools. The idea people say like money has no morals. Money is, is a tool you can use. So it's not evil inherently. I think storytelling and imagery is very much the same way. So in the same way that fashion can be a tool for insecurity that's very profitable for whoever is sitting in a boardroom that looks nothing like you, it can also be a very effective tool 
for making people stop and look at those who they wouldn't look at ordinarily. So again, to use the, the very first example for me, we go into these areas. It's Generally, it's been Italy because of the interesting overlap between the fashion industry, because it comes from Italy, and also the migration crises. So that's where this project I've been working on has been. Yeah. But we go there, and so you cast these individuals who are literally either spat at or ignored in the street. You put them in some beautiful clothing, and all of a sudden people are stopping asking, oh, is this person Kanye? Literally. By the way, this guy looks nothing like Kanye or Jay Z, but it's, it's so it's the progress. I'm well, to, it, but it's it's an I'm interesting irony of like that. exactly. So, but in their minds, it's like you're somebody who I should respect and love because you are, you are now within my definition of gorgeous. Now, that's not to say that we should present ourselves in a way that's like uh, respectable or present ourselves in the way for that others will accept us. But it's really more of almost a social experience to show that when when people are presented in a way that we deem classically beautiful our biases strip away right and so it's it's very much a metaphor for what opportunities could you provide if you just stopped for a second and looked at each other as more than what you've cast people as mm. when they walk into a room so if i walk into a room and i'm black dude dressed regularly in italy dark skin on a street corner you assume this guy is coming to take my jobs or take my charity or, or whatever whatever right. you think that there's nothing he has to offer i take the same person make him look a little bit different than you would think and all of a sudden, he's giving lessons to your child on football in, in a villa overlooking this gorgeous landscape. And I have this chef who's a gourmet, like five-star chef, cooking a meal for a migrant, people who would never interact with each other. But all of a sudden, they realize they have X, Y, and Z in common because they took a second to stop. And the stopping is really just, it's a picture, it's a beautiful image, it's beauty. All of us respond to this well. And so you, when you, for me, it's the idea that none of us in society take well to being yelled at or to having fingers wagged at us mm. so as much as we see this these really harrowing and powerful images whether it's the times in new york or, or wherever of the refugee crisis we see the kids on the beach all accurate and true stories we numb to them because we have to look away it's too painful right and it's, it's not really working i think one of we've discovered that even though it's accurate and true it's only a subset of the whole story and also it dehumanizes these individuals because it casts them in our minds as just that just a child on the beach. You think of Syrians in, in, in Europe or wherever, you think of them as that the dust-covered kid in the ambulance. You don't think of him as hearing a bedtime story or playing football or just being a kid. Yeah. He's also that. Well, I mean, it's of, of all the, like, kind of bizarre first world syndromes that we run into, things like, you know, having too much food, you know, and right. stuff like that. Compassion fatigue is is very real, right? It's right. like people just sort of looking at a series of problems, just being like, oh, I can't, I can't even, you right. know, which is why you get into things like, you know, we're trying to do with food, you're trying to do with fashion, Absolutely. where you just like present something that's appealing on some level, because somehow you can like sneak in that pleasure neuron, sure. <laughs> you know, sneak in that door sure. and to explain to people that, you know, these, these, these people have, for example, a, a cooking and eating tradition that would blow your mind Absolutely. and you would love it. And they're not just defined by this kind of era of victimhood. And I remember, I mean, we, we spent some time in Palermo, which has a huge uh, Ghanaian population. Mm. I hear it's gorgeous, by the way. They told me I need to go there. Palermo's a, a movie set of a city. Yeah. If you added, like, you know, in New York, they um, they take big black bags and fill it with, like, some kind of special filling to create the look of trash bags mm. for movie sets. Mm. In Palermo, it's actual trash. Wow. And they just have piles of actual Yikes. trash. <laughs> so Yikes. it's, like, this part of the charm of, uh, <laughs> of the Palermo, you know, the, the Palermo experience. 
the city's ridiculous, and they actually have this mayor who's incredible because he's trying to, he's been at the forefront of trying to integrate this population that he knows, mm. and particularly it's centered around the Balaro market, which is a Ghanaian population that is like growing and is the life of a kind of moribund city. And he's been he's been super badass and kind of recognizing that and bringing it on. It's not the most popular trend in Italian politics. Well, I see your mayor in Palermo, and I and I raise you the mayor of uh, a small town called Riace, in Calabria. A guy's name is Domenico Lucano, I believe, and. He was similarly pushing for the integration and kind of a equitable treatment of, of migrants. And for his brave efforts, he woke up to find his car burned out by the mafia. Mm. And he was recently chased out of his town by the powers that be. Because yeah. it's like these efforts are welcomed by you and I, probably. Yeah. Not so welcomed by everybody. Yeah. You know, it's just being aware of, of how polarizing this stuff is. Yeah. And the irony of this guy is he's now, like we were... Because it's ca- we cast migrants for this project. We cast this kid that we cast as a migrant from Gambia. So we drop him off at home after a day of shooting, and we're driving down the street, and the picture's like, oh, by the way, that's Lucano's house. So the mayor, who had been um, exiled from his town, now lives on the same block, public housing, as the migrants, because that's the only place he could find a home after he was shut down by the mafia. So that's the, fascinating. Yeah, and that's a, that's in itself is a Shakespearean tale from his perspective, like. <laughs> you know, the, the good you try to do in the world imprisons you within the prison of what you tried to save. But it's also just a commentary on how this is an ongoing human battle. It benefits people in different ways. Why why Calabria? I'd done this in Florence and Rome. Those are obviously gorgeous, beautiful cities. So for me, the idea of going to kind of a forgotten place with forgotten people and showing the beauty is just as relevant there. So the Calabria story is particularly fascinating because these are towns who are... I'd never seen... It's like a theme park. It's literally empty fantastic, gorgeous Italian towns, only it feels like a movie set because there's nobody there. And we joked about how we could never replicate this because the amount of, you would have to pay for just location is nuts. Like when I, when I have the images for it, it's gonna be like us in old churches, us in towns, us in ancient ruins, we just strolled in. You can't get that anywhere. And that, that is the case because the young population has moved away to the big cities for jobs. So what you have now is like the older population and interestingly, these migrants that have come in. And so you have this really, great milieu of like young Syrians and Africans and old Italian men and women, and they're meshing. And because they're building the economy back up, younger Italians are starting to move back in slowly. But right now we're still at that kind of early point where it's basically still a ghost town. And so you have these like young black kids, young Arab kids running around, uh, doing errands for old Italians. It's a really strange but beautiful picture. Yeah. Uh, And it was just something I thought would be fascinating to capture that people just don't know about. Yeah, demographic destiny's a bitch, man. It's yeah. gonna it's gonna put a lot of these people to the to the test, yeah. you know. I mean, we have that in our heartland too, where I used to be on the immigration beat for a time, and and you'd go to blown out towns. I mean, people were leaving, especially young people. There's the schools were shutting down, mm. and all of a sudden, like you'll have Mexicans move in, yeah. uh, Central Americans bring their children fill the schools up again, right. the parks are full. Sure, they're playing like Ecuadorian volleyball, Still. you know, but it's, the park is full. Like yeah. you got, you got taxpayers and, and uh, somewhere, I, I guess I really fucked up this prediction, but I thought that you would get to a point where a place like Calabria or rural Ohio sure. would just through demographics alone sort of realize the utility of, of a changing world. Yeah. And, and no. No, I mean, people, I get, people are just like dying to be in that world where uh, all the young people leave and everybody that's left is old and white and mad. It's an interesting thing because 
I guess I, I always try to think of this as a, you know, I'm a former lawyer recovering and, and it's, you always think of the other side. That's like the curse of like having this, this training. And <laughs> so if I, like Lincoln Douglas. Yeah. It's, it, this is forever. by the way horrible for relationships because you're always thinking of, well, but, but <laughs> by the way, Maybe so and so wasn't such a jerk at work. So Don't do that. That's yeah, no, no. It's, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I've gotten a, I'm the last it. person to give marriage advice. That's that yeah. sounds like a really bad. It approach. is. Trust me. <laughs> um, law school in general is bad advice. But the other perspective is, if you are one of these old Calabrian or old white and Middle American people, you wake up one day and perhaps most of your children are gone. And your town looks vastly different. Maybe the factories is broken down or the farmlands are empty. And you look up and everybody you see looks nothing like you and perhaps they speak half Italian or, or half Mexican not as much as you would like and it's just you know what is it like to be that person it's it can't feel great I have a different perspective because I immigrated to the U.S. and so I, obviously I have a slanted point of view but just considering what it's like to be that person and the adjustment it would take for them to kind of settle in I think like we all need patience all across the board well in the in the African century to come the Americans will be immigrating to Nigeria and Nigerians will be forced to face their Probably. own, you know, their yeah. own feelings about people. That, I mean, it happens within Africa all the time, sure. right? I mean, the the uh, the movement of people is a huge issue there, and just their, you know, their own xenophobias, and also trying to locate like the source of that. Yeah, like is this some shit that the British actually did to us? Like, you know, why or or is this, you know, does it go deeper? Is this just, you know, or is this yeah? And I think we find is as, as a human means always find a reason to divide. Mm. I think so. For some, somebody like myself who grew up on the African continent, we have the interesting luxury of not thinking in terms of of racial discrimination because it's not within our daily world until we move to the West. But what we do have in spades is ethnic discrimination. So this is like, you know, probably humanity's greatest product wholesale, wherever you are, we will find a reason to divide within whatever our group is. Yeah. You know, there's a funny joke about like, I don't want my people to succeed if they're close within my neighborhood, but if they're far away, it's fine. <laughs> so, you know, you root for the guy who's over there, but not the guy who's next door to you. Uh, I know um, you had had a music career before you had a legal career, yeah. which is what came before Short-lived. your current fashion career. Give me the sizzle reel. So I think it comes out to essentially what happens when you are an um, immigrant kid who happens to be artistically inclined. If anybody's parents of any ethnicity who struggles and fights and, and bribes and bleeds to get them to America wants them to have the success of America, which generally is defined by the, within the categories of doctor, lawyer, and engineer, engineer. It's Asians, it's Africans, it's everybody who makes it here. Their parents rightfully want them better for their kids. And so within that scope, the word artist is a ridiculous thing to comprehend. And generally a foolish thing because who does well as an artist anywhere? So it starts off with me being a kid, a teenager in the U.S., playing guitar and drums in indie rock bands, going to college, becoming a producer and vocalist and like semi-rapper, condensed, this condensed version, putting yeah. out a few, a few indie albums, realizing very, very quickly that the indie world doesn't pay, even though you have some records out and people think it's cool you're not taking your girl out to dinner, which is the thing that turns out to be important to you because you want to compete with the world. Right. Right. So very, very quickly, you satisfy your parents by saying, I, I'll do the law school thing because it's what you want and because I would like to have shoes that look decent. You go there. You, so there's, there's a Venn diagram between like your desires and your parents. Oh, it's always there. Yeah. And it, it's forever the deprogramming. And not in a negative sense because that's what we do to our children is we try to make them versions of human beings that we hope we would like to see. 
and eventually there's an interesting uh, separation between what they want to do with their lives and what you want to do with their lives. Well, I take a lot of pride in our continual track record of enabling sort of, you know, anti-parental dreams for the children of immigrants. But for you, you finally made the decision and you, it sounds like you had some success, at least in, in the terms that I would know it, like being on the same label, having the same manager as MF Doom, right. to me speaks to, you know, somebody who's got a spot in, uh, in kind of, uh, that kind of indie deep cuts early uh, thousands yeah yeah i mean it definitely i think for me it was uh i bailed early and quickly like they say fail quickly and fail often in, in the uh in the nomenclature of, of silicon valley i clearly had an interesting voice and a talent but i, I kind of gamed it out and was like long term this is it just didn't seem and also immediately i was in my early 20s i was you need to have something tangible to be present to the world like this is cool, but by the way, my house or my car or my shoes look like X, Y, Z, or my bank account, more practically. That was not the case. I think perhaps because of the, of the immigrant background, it was like, we need to make this make sense. And so I went to law school here in Philadelphia and did moderately well and, and found myself, you know, I often say, I think like, life gives you exactly what you ask for, but it gives you all of it. So <laughs> if you send your child to go off and be a lawyer, they will be that. And it entails the whole picture. Um, so I find myself, I have this image of me working on a trial within the first three months of my case, this is a big corporate law gig. I was an intern, not an intern, an associate, which is the bottom of the barrel. And I'm sitting there and just filing papers and just making binders of documents past midnight in an office by myself, putting documents together. And I'm like, I'm too smart and talented for this. And I was getting paid an exorbitant amount of money to do that, to basically do menial work. And it's like, this is not what I'm put on this planet for. It's, it's, It's almost, it's, it's doubly insulting because you know you're being paid to fill a slot. But isn't there some path to then becoming like presumably if yeah. you want to be like, let's not insult people who are, who do that work. It was not the path that was laid out for me. You know, right. I, I knew I, th- I think I knew inherently, and many of us do. Another thing I say, I'm getting old enough to where I have sayings, is that you, there are things you can do, and there are things you're made to do. So I could have been a mediocre lawyer who was middling and making a lot of money, or I could be what I've found myself to be becoming now, somebody who has a fairly unique point of view on issues that I think are important. And more important to me is the work I've been doing is I'm meeting people who I find I'm having some degree of impact on their perspectives, if not their lives. And that to me is way more meaningful than like writing a memo with legalese and turning it into a partner who then won't have any uh, acknowledgement of my gift as a writer or as a person. Man, some amazing writing talent has been cannibalized by the legal industry. Sure. I'm always that in the State Department, you know, when they released all those State Department uh, memos. I mean, all of us in the journalism community were like, fuck, these, these guys are good. Right. <laughs> these guys are good. They're like about, doing dispatches from like Dagestani weddings. And I, right. would, I would pay money. Right. I would pay for that like Amazon Kindle single. Sure. And they were just like State Department functionaries. Yeah, so it's the, like those John Woo torture members are heat again, in the bars, but yeah. it's uh, also bars. And, and a pox on parents everywhere because you know. Like they had some like super responsible parent who was like, "Are you a good writer? Maybe yeah. you should go to law school. Sure. Maybe you should think about the state department. Sure. <laughs> or, or you like to argue? You have a point. You have an opinion of your own. Go to law school. Which is, <laughs> it, you know, nobody means this, but it's almost the most demeaning thing. It's like you should go. You know, it's it's very sad. That said, parents do this because parents love you and that they, they do what they think is the nah, best. They're the worst. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which speaking as one of the tribe, yeah. I'm, uh, Worst, worst instincts ever. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you want to backtalk me? I'm going to condemn you to a career in, uh, you know, uh, briefings. <laughs> uh, all right. But you had been from Pittsburgh. Like, you you grew up in Pittsburgh after coming to the U.S. Alabama, actually. Auburn, Alabama. 
college okay. town. Generally, when I say Alabama, people raise the eyebrows, but I had because Auburn is a straight up college town. I'm, I'm listening to indie rock. Like I, I had never had any of the things. The one pictures when you think of like black person or black immigrant in, in Avalon was perfectly fine. And my friends are all like white indie kids, which was very to me. I, I've had a history of basically growing up in random places that are very culturally intermarried which I think has been beneficial because it gives me a point of view and just an, an openness to the world that I think is, is a great way. I mean, travel is the first one. The other one is to just kind of integrate yourself within places where you're not always comfortable, but you're forced to listen and learn from other people. So it was Alabama and then, and then Georgia and then Philadelphia and now hopefully the world at large. There it is. So and so you came to Philly for, for law school yep. and stayed. And for the, the wonderful wife is generally the way it goes oh, okay. for most of us. All right. So there was something else besides your legal degree. That yeah, had, yeah, yeah. Thankfully. Kind of, uh, settled you down here. So tell me something. I mean, this is this is our first episode of a few in, in Philadelphia. Like, tell me, tell me something about this city hmm. that people should know. Philly is at the forefront, as many places are, of it fascinating gentrification and i say this as as a purveyor of of this you know nobody is no hands are clean we all have it's just it's a really interesting thing because i I lived in west philly which is not terribly far from here for about a decade or so we recently moved to the burbs because it's what young families do but it's interesting watching house prices rocket in places that you know 10 years ago when we moved in our parents were like this is not okay and now it's like oh this is very okay. Right. Not or, so or for it's us not individually. Okay it's too expensive. Right. right. And and so it's but it is strange watching this happen in slow motion because it's so gradual you don't quite realize you wake up and you don't look like anyone. That said, I think this is just the nature of things. And so one hopes that uh human beings are always respectful of each other because I I think it's not inherently bad in itself. It's the nature of people moving around. But I think for the, those of us who have hopefully longer memories we can recall that we weren't always the ones here. And there's always someone before, and that's speaking, whether it's your neighborhood or your entire nation, there's always somebody there before you. You know, tip your hat to the old lady who's there because she's always been here. Man, that's the stuff that drives me the craziest about a lot of those gentrification stories in New York is just, I, I mean, just people saying, like, I just want somebody to say hi, like, right. make eye contact. Right. Like, it's fine if you're in the neighborhood, but, like, right. you know, and that's just, it, it just, it seems reasonable, seems rational, sure. but um, that's... I guess that's that's just people not being good at being people. <laughs> yeah, it's you so. know it, it it takes practicing and being uh being loved and realizing that people are have needs just as anyone does. And at the same time, it's there are these beautiful stories because you do end up if you take the time to get to know your neighbors, they're the ones who are going to look out for you. That's the beauty of having a city is no matter what they look like, um, they will be there to you know. We had a, a lovely Miss Lillian who lived next door to us for a decade, and the joke was she would always be perpetually peeking through her. Her blinds, like that picture of Malcolm X with the, with the AK, only just her and like a duster. And so she always knows what's happening. And, and you get the text messages with like, there's something on the block. And it's it's silly and it's funny, but like it's nice to have that community. But if you never speak to people, you never get in on that. That's right. I, I mean, I pride myself on the people I know, the connections, uh, just, just relationships give me a lot of sustenance. I could not tell you who lives on my floor mm. yeah. <laughs> in my apartment building. That's, but that's the nature of things. That's oh, how, man. It's yeah. A, yeah, I got I to gotta work on that. I'm going to bring in some of these, uh, some of these caipirinhas. <laughs> we'll, have a, we'll have a little floor party. All right, so you're in, you're in this legal hell, and you want to get out. <laughs> it's dramatic, but it's true. Uh, and I guess you had mentioned that one of the things that was – kind of tugging at you when you were in this indie hip-hop thing was 
not being able to have the right clothes? Like, was that always something in your mind? Is like that, that clothes yeah. tell a story that you want to be able no, to be I mean, in charge of? Or? I was never, frankly, interested in clothing or the way that I. I think the bottom line is I've always been like many of us are a storyteller of some sort. And so you, when you're creative, you're always creative. And and people ask me sometimes, well, do you miss making music? And the answer is no, because I'm doing this. As long as you're making something, I don't think it matters what you're making per se. Um, so the fashion just came about because as somebody who is in the legal industry, you're obligated to wear suits. And contrary to probably belief, most lawyers dress like trash, but I wasn't going to be one of them. And so I found myself, because I hated my job so much, as therapy, throwing exorbitant funds towards clothing. Yeah. And what that's... that's- Hey, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I spent some time with Barry Sheck, you know, the Innocence yeah. Project. Yeah. That guy dresses like a, that's like some hobo level stuff. Yeah. But he's got that Columbo thing. Sure. That, like makes it work for him. He's yeah. Like, big old baggy jackets and yeah. like. Fits the vibe. Floral print ties and stuff. So, but like, how do you decide, I guess you just decided that you were going to be the lawyer who's like just doing it correctly. Yeah, well, if anything, it was not so much, the lawyer part had nothing to do with it. I just wanted to look dope. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and I happen to at the time have the means newly because it's it's also like they're giving you the money. Why not? Yeah, spend it and, on, and like right. to be frank, again, it was therapy because it was like if I'm doing what I consider to be a waste of myself, um, and it's really pretty depressing. You have to justify it somehow. You see, you, you say, well, oh, well, it, this makes sense because I can walk into the store and just yeah, I'll take that. Thanks, I'll have that. And so, but what that did though, that whole experience was maybe realize you walk into these places. And they don't care about you. They care that you have X amount of money to give them. And so I thought, what would happen if somebody actually cared about the people who walked in these doors? And specifically, if they cared about people from my background? Because it just is not and has not been a business that looks to people from the African continent and says, I can make you every bit as James Bond as Daniel Craig and have it not be a costume. And I guess it's kind of essentially what the idea of Black Panther is, but a little bit before. And just like, there's no reason every part of the globe can't have the same level of uh, beauty to it and the sophistication to it. And there's no reason people can't look at an Idris Elba and be like, I want to be this guy, even though I'm a fat Irish dude. Right. Or whatever. Right. So why does Savile Row only exist exactly. for, you for know, in a UK English. context? Right. Huh. And so for me, it just then became, well, what happens when somebody not only does that aesthetically, but also taps into the, the issues that you and I all care about? Because again, most of these companies are too, I don't know if it's the shareholders or just the lack of interest, don't do that. There's a safety or a caution that comes from being very large and too big to fail. Therefore, it's too big to have an opinion on things that matter. So you're not going to get a Louis Vuitton talking about the refugee crisis because that's going to polarize too many people who have money that's tied up in things. Um, but when you're small and nimble and you care about things, when you, it's basically punk rock with clothing, just a lot fancier. And so I can now have the find myself an interest, interesting position to where I, I make these beautiful clothings, I and, and my team, and then we put it on people who you wouldn't look at, and we make you look at them and go like, wow, I want to be this dude, but he's a refugee who I would be discriminating against, and what does that do to my cognitive dissonance inside me? But how does that, like, take me through that practically. How does that work? Like, I assume we're talking about, you know, the Italian sure. trip in context. You're finding a dude who's who's rolled up there from North Africa. Right. Or- so first of all, so when you're a model, it is your job to be rejected 90% of the time. That's You, you get... 100 of you guys walk into a room for a so-and-so designer, and he goes, I want this version of skinny point two person model X of the robot, and uh, you just know you get rejected. It's very, very strange when like we roll up in a town, and they first of all, they're excited because this big fancy designer who's disappointing in person is coming, and they have some idea of what the story is because it's, it's had some success thus far, but now you have to tell these people no. 
it's not their job to hear no. And so I find it, it's, we've been working on just the tact of it, of being like, listen, you're not quite what we're looking for because not only are you physically casting for somebody to fit the clothes, that's the practical thing, you're also casting for kind of an interesting story. Everybody has them, but you're looking for a bit interesting story. For on this most recent trip, we found a, a guy who was an 18-year-old kid from Gambia, and he made the crossing when he was 15. He one day walked out of his home and he said, I decided I've been thinking about it. And if I, if I step out of my house today, I'm not coming back. And so he decided to make, make the jump. And yeah. so he leaves. He crosses the Sahara in a truck, as many people do. He crosses the Mediterranean in a boat, as many people do. He happened to be on one of these boats that was leaking. 155 of them on the boat. It's taking in water. They start to mayday for help as the boat begins to sink and the Italians come. And they save him. And it's a cinematic thing where this, he was 15 years old. And he had other migrants telling him, like, yo, what are you doing? You're too young for this trip. And he, in the words he, he said to me, he told him, this crossing is not just for you. If you can make this crossing, I can make it too. And it's, it's almost this uh, Charles Dickens story of this, this kid who just wanted to make something of himself and his life. He wanted better. And he didn't want to wait till he was a grown-up to do it. And so he's now 15. And he lives in Calabria. And this is the kind of person. This is it's like movie stuff. And this is a real person. And this guy is... By the way, happens to be like physically gorgeous and is just a really, really sweet, really, really good kid, and he just wants to work. And so he works in the fields, and they pay him like on a good day 30 euros. I pay him as I would pay a professional model, which is upwards of like 100 euros. So this is a day of work for this guy, mm. but it's also an uplifting project that hopefully he can take with him and, and becomes maybe something more. Now, did you did you bring the clothes with you from the States? Are you making them after you've met him? We do, just from a practical nature. It's, it's just me and like a, my small team of like four people, so we make them at home. Really, the goal of this, the hope of it, is to travel the globe and to research prior to. So, for example, if we did Mexico, it'd be like, wait for a second, find out where in Mexico or the border we're doing, what do these people look like uh, aesthetically? Build a collection, go to the border, shoot the stories, come home with, with a thing that's like aspirational and transcendent about these individuals who we've been spending so much time castigating because they happen to have lives where they want to provide for their kids. Do you, when you're putting that together for this 18-year-old from Gambia, do you think about the styles in Gambia, the styles in Italy, or is there some sort of international, like, transnational sure. look that you're looking to go for? Or maybe it's like, this is what an African look should be, or is it is it more specific than that? Yeah, I mean, in the past, generally, it has been essentially kind of marrying African and European stylings because that not only fits the narrative and the locale, but it's also a universal, like, menswear look, but with kind of bolder colors and vivid imagery that marries both renaissance art and images of people of african descent i think the challenge going forward is how to take that concept and apply it to different ethnicities and, and backgrounds so that, that'll be the interesting thing is to like well how do we do this for asians and for latinos and for brazilians and just thinking more broadly about tapping into the world and the stories that are across the globe so tell me i've heard a version of the story but i'd love to hear it from you just sure. like how you ended up getting involved with black panther yeah it's uh less interesting than one would think I, I get a call. All right, are you guys ready for this? It's gonna yeah, be less it's, it's like two seconds. Well, actually, well, I mean, what happened was I got a call to work on a thing for a, like a singer, hip hop producer, and that didn't pan out. But then the individual, the stylist who called me, I think kept me in the back of their head. And, and then the Black Panther thing comes up. But I think this happens because we've been, I've been working on this for, the brand is it's the same age as my daughter, so it's six now. And I think it's been a very, very small, but pretty strong voice to what we're doing. And so it's like when people want, I want the guy who does X, Y, and Z, I'm that guy because there's nobody else who does this point of view. 
And so even though it's very, very small, it's like a, the, the gift of having, the gift and the curse of having a, a strong voice. Right. It's not going to be for everybody, but right. for or, those for whom it is, it, you it, are the option. On the nose. Exactly. Yeah. So we get a call and it's like, we're working on this thing we can't tell you about because, so this is Marvel and Disney. If you don't know, they, it's like very CIA-esque and they're like working on this thing involving royalty in Africa and superheroes and are you interested and it was basically that. And I was like, I know. I, <laughs> we all know what this is here. Unfortunately, there's not a wide palette of yeah, options among right. royalty Africa superheroes in the Marvel um, universe. And it, it, it had a code name the entire time, even in, in the NDAs. What was the code I don't know if I'm allowed to say the code. I'm not sure. I, would, okay. yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it'll be the same code name for part two. I probably shouldn't say it. Okay. If there is a part two, if I'm involved, hint, hint, help, help, please. Um, <laughs> That's right. So listening. yeah, I, I, I get a call, and it's like we have... Um, a thing we're working on and we think your work is interesting, can you send us some stuff? So basically over the next several months, we send them a bunch of things. And as it happens, like, spoiler at this point, they only use one thing. But it, it was used in such a grandiose and absurdly beautiful way. Like, you can't buy that sort of advertising. It's literally billion-dollar advertising. So tell tell the listeners so where it end up. So my first exposure is I'm watching a Super Bowl ad probably in 2017 or 16, I forget which year. And you see Chadwick Boseman playing the Black Panther. He's wearing a scarf that I designed which is nuts. It's fantastic. So it's like, ah, we tell the world, people are excited. Fast forward to a year later, the film com comes out. Everybody I know has been told I'm in this movie. And we're like, yes, we're in the movie. Um, I go with my wife to a press screening. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's fantastic. You're sitting in a room with like all press and they don't know who I am. Everybody should know who I am. And it's, it's all, yeah, press is, do your job. Um, for me, it was really surreal to watch them be excited to watch this cool thing. And, and for me, the significance of like, the, this is great for me because I'm actually kind of in this thing, right? So we're watching this film. It's great. We're loving it. Watching, 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 watching. And it ends. And the credits roll. And I'm doing the math like, I have to go home and tell everybody I'm not in this film. I've just spent the past year telling you I'm in. And also, I'm like, what happened? What happened? Then there's a post credit scene. And then you see... Chadwick Boseman wearing my thing, and he's the size of a wall because it's like that's fascinating. Somehow, so the the makers of the film really found a fashion moment, it, right? Right. It sounds like you're describing like almost a fashion shot. It was like bang on. Like if there was, if you were gonna write like a money shot for lack of a better phrase, it would be that. It's you can't ask for that kind of like. So it, it happened that way. I did. I you know I sat through the credits uh, hardcore because uh, a buddy of mine was a writer on the comic books of nice. it, and I was just waiting and waiting and waiting. Yeah. Like, when is the name going to come? Sure. I, I, thought, I thought it should be. You know, I don't know right shit away. about how yeah. Hollywood works, but you know, this man had written the comic books. I should like come anyway. It's yeah. like special thanks. Yeah. Like way at the end. Oh, know, he he at least got that. The, yeah, he did get that. Yeah, right. but the you know the the theater was empty. <laughs> the credits are rolling, and, sure. and and you just realize that like man, it's a machine. Like you just it uh, is. It is. He said he was fine with it. Like he he knew that that's that's where he was going to live in that thing. I was I was I was outraged on his behalf. If you are you look at philosophically, you look at the impact you've had, and it's not always going to be front page giant marquee. Sometimes it's it's good enough to know that like you've shifted culture in a direction. And maybe it won't be you, maybe it'll be the next person after you. And sometimes it's enough to just kind of be in the, in the game versus being the one whose like, name is on the jersey. But didn't you tweet at them or something? That's the other half of it. I, um, a year prior to, uh -huh. I sent a tweet like, guys, I should be the one doing this thing. And so I think that also, but it, I don't want to tell kids that you can tweet at a giant conglomerate and they're going to like read your tweet and, and change the world to fit your narrative. Kids, you should definitely do that. Yeah. 
I don't mean, don't tweet me because that's been happening. It's like it's like the irony. Of people. No, you're like it only works one way. I tweet right, at people right, and get right. opportunities. No, right. I I listen, man. That's that's a that's great A level hustle. You know, it's got to be on. Um, we had that thing also where I I think it got written up as like a drunken email to Bourdain when we mm. first asked him to invest in the company, which sounds like a you know when you put it on like um, you know a a, a business website it sounds, sounds terrible. Sounds really insane. Uh, I don't think he was that drunk. My partner was just drinking. Sure, not fair. Drunk. And it fits the brand, you know. But at the same yeah. time, I know. Well, he was pissed about it. He was like, "I wasn't drunk," and I was just like, "You know, actually, <laughs> actually, the headline's good. Just go with that." <laughs> and like, of course, Tony was like, "Yeah, that sounds great." Right. You know, uh, he was he was down for it. But there's sometimes like. And that doesn't matter, like where you at in the thing. Sometimes you just have to go out and just say, like, this is what I do. Yeah, like, yeah. Just start shouting at people, and and I know Twitter and and you know email is a place where everybody's shouting at everybody for that next thing. But if you can back it up, if Absolutely. you send them the stuff later, and they're like, yes, then yeah. there you have it. So what are we gonna see from you know what's the manifestation of, of this thing. the project that you've been doing it? So I've been lucky. The first uh, two, so the project is called After Migration. The brand's Akira Jones, but I'm trying to to your earlier point have a bit of delineation because you don't want to be in a situation where you're marketing clothing by using refugees, which is what people have done, and so it's essentially. I use my design work from Ikira Jones for the purpose of After Migration, which is a story involving not just fashion design, but also still photography, interviews I do with the migrants, and now with this newest version, also film component. And I was very fortunate to get a grant from Net National Geographic, so they helped sponsor the last trip. And so we'll see if the, they decide to publish. We don't know yet, but that's it's a thing that's been made, and hopefully it'll live somewhere. Yeah. And, and so for us, we're super excited because we've made it, and like this thing is, I can say fairly, the best creative thing I've ever done. And it's nice to be able to say that with the just honesty and like, and I think it's because it's bigger than I am. And so you meet like the kid from Gambia and, and, a, and a woman from, from Nigeria who traveled by herself as well and gave birth to her daughter in a refugee camp. And so now we're following these two twin stories within Calabria. And the hope is we can do this across the world. And you realize these people, basically any corner of the earth you go, you can find beauty in some shape or form. And so what is the way to get the world to take a second to stop and look at these people? And I happen to be if I'm gifted as a designer, then this is my way. We each have our different ways. Um, so how it's going to live, hopefully exhibition, hopefully film, hopefully it becomes a series of some sort, I don't know. But it's it's nice to be, I think, have your finger on the pulse of something that's generally meaningful. You know, we're all chasing meaning, and if you can do meaning in a way that's beautiful and, and perhaps even profitable, that is what we're, that's what we're after. We got kids. So <laughs> right. I, got, I got kids, I got a mortgage, and I want to make some good stuff. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to... Um... You don't want to create on the edge of annihilation, right? Uh, which which does does happen quite a bit. But so, it, in terms of fashion and, and where you think it can go, like obviously you're going to be working on this for a while. Are yep. there what else could fashion should you know be asked to do? What should it do in our culture that that it isn't doing now? I think it's probably slower like than other industries have been, but it's going to come the time when like the, all the sacred cows will be killed or die off and we're of a generation i mean we're old enough now that we're we're on the way out and <laughs> say death comes for us all but there are kids who have grown up in a way that they're looking at the internet it's like well i can just make my thing much like you and i did but they're really like all they've known is people making their things and seeing it on social media yeah youtube so, fashion designers are definitely going to be at that right. probably already is right. I mean, right i'm sure and so what happens when people say like listen i weigh x pounds or i am of such uncategorized gender and i'm tired of walking into a store and feeling like i don't belong here and I'm just going to make my thing for all the millions of kids who I know look just like me. 
that time is coming if it's not already here. So there's a chance at democratization. Absolutely. And in, uh, in probably the least democratic like art form, right? right. I mean, intentionally. Yeah, so, intentionally right. shown. So I think if anything, it's much like the, the trend has been, I would say, to, to the dinosaurs. It's like, enjoy the last of your laurels because your time is, is up. Man, we are coming for you. Yeah. It got, it got, it got, it got grim. Hey. <laughs> but I grew up listening to a lot of Radiohead. So. <laughs> that's, that's where we leave it. Fashion, watch out. Yep. We're coming for you. Wale, what a pleasure, man. Likewise. It's been amazing to talk to you. Thank you for suggesting this Kuiperinia. I'm going to, I'm going to kick off most mornings if I can help it. Uh, like, like, like we've been saying, dry January ended, uh, with extreme prejudice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're, we're getting back into it. This that's a beautiful drink choice. I'm Thank feeling you. it. Hope you survive the day. All right. Wale, cheers. Cheers. The trip from Luminary Media and Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Taffy Mukanyadze is our editor and one hell of a Kuiperinia mixer. Emily Marinoff is our producer, and I thank her for lurking with middle school history class tour groups all morning. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustrations by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. On RoadsAndKingdoms.com, we've got a burner of a feature story from writer John McCarthy, who reported on the growing clashes between Canadian miners and Alaskan fishermen. Sorry, but I am Team Fisherman on this one. Check out the story on roadsandkingdoms.com. We are coming up on the end of the free month on Luminary Media. After that, this show is all for subscribers only. Luminary Media, as you've heard here before, is a collection of incredible exclusive shows from Trevor Noah's to Lena Dunham's to this show. And I know something that only Taffy and Emily know as well, and that is just how good these upcoming months are going to be on the trip. We are going to London, we're going to the Mission District in San Francisco, we're going to Iraq. Come with us. Go to luminary.link backslash trip to sign up for the ride. That is luminary.link backslash trip to sign up. Next week, Michael Solomonoff. If you care about food here in the Northeast, you know about Zahav. Well, Michael is the chef and co-owner there. He is Israel-born, Pittsburgh-raised, and now a Philadelphia lifer. It was a great conversation about the Middle East and the Northeast and just about everything in between. I hope we'll meet you there.